You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Shout out to all pharmacy owners out there, your champions of your community during this pandemic. Your pharmacy is more important than ever before. There's a product out there I'd like you to take a look at. I'm talking about the Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack. For the same copay for your patients as pen needles alone, the UltiGuard Safe Pack provides 100 premium pen needles and a sharps container all in one. When pharmacies dispense the Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack, they see consistently higher revenue and higher margins. Check this product out today and let us know what you think. Go to www.ultiguardsafepack forward slash podcast. That's ultiguardsafepack forward slash podcast. You can get a free sample pack on the website. Thanks for all you do as frontline healthcare providers. And thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Let's Pharmanize, now part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Shane Gerritsen. I'm Cal Vandegrift. I'm Mickey Ferguson. And I'm Ivan Stewart. And today we're going to talk about designer drugs and the history thereof. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. Designer drugs, is, is everybody here familiar with what designer drugs are, the general idea of designer drugs? Only based on the Google that I just had five minutes ago when you told me what the topic was. Yeah. I mean, there, there ain't nothing wrong with that. Google is the expert. Very big right? understanding. Yeah, the in-house expert. Essentially, a designer drug is a chemical that is meant to dodge existing legislations on illegal drugs. They are chemicals that their framework has been based on an illegal or controlled substance, but they have been modified just ever so slightly in various ways in order to achieve a gray area legal status. Oh, but yeah. I've heard of those. Uh, Flocka is one of those, isn't it? Yeah, Flocka, the gravel, which I believe was alpha pyrovalerone, the bath salts, quote unquote. There was uh, spice and K2, all the synthetic marijuana analogs, oh. which fall under a class of analog that I'll talk about sort of later in the, in the episode. But there, there's been a ton of them, some of them more well-known, some of them less well-known. But recently, we've experienced sort of a boom in them. Um, in order to talk fully about designer drugs in a cohesive way, I'm going to go back a little bit of the, to the history of designer drugs before the name designer drug even really existed. Back in 1925-ish, the United States passed its first act. I believe it was called the Opium Control Act. It was a federal act that just said, all right, so nobody can have heroin, opium, or morphine anymore. So the government banned these substances, and they were they were pretty specific about it, not anticipating how much of a smart aleck drug chemist would ultimately be about it. Um, so they banned those things. And then the first international game of chemistry, I swear I'm really not touching you, began. 
So I'm, I'm going to imagine that you're the U.S. government incarnated as, say, a six-year-old child, and you're on a very long car ride with your sibling, and your sibling keeps poking you in the side of the face, and you go, I'm going to need you to stop touching me. <laughs> and they go, holding their hand directly next to your face, or perhaps even in front of your eyeballs, but I'm not touching you. And they continue to do this because they have not technically touched you, and that is essentially the basis for what we're talking about. In the absence of the ability to peddle morphine, heroin, or raw opium, certain chemists decided that they were just going to take the general formulas of these drugs and produce them in slightly different ways to achieve the same effect. Some of the more popular designer drugs of the time were dibenzoyl morphine, which is essentially like heroin and then it has two lipophilic groups attached to the morphine molecule because heroin is just morphine that has been refluxed with acetic anhydride, causing the attachment of acetyl groups to two positions on the morphine molecule. So there was dibenzoyl morphine and then there was a much less catchy acetylpropionyl morphine which I believe was an ester of propionic acid, if I recall correctly. Does that addition of the hydrophilic groups, does that affect the potency and then like the speed with which it can cross the blood-brain barrier? Yes, that is the whole reason that heroin is more effective and more widely desirable than morphine, or diacetyl morphine, I suppose would be the more proper name to refer to it by on a pharmacy podcast. These lipophilic groups enable it to cross the blood-brain barrier more effectively, as you said, and it also enables there to be more uh, intermediates, more metabolic intermediates between the initial drug and the elimination of the drug. Like mm -hmm. heroin, it comes in as diacetylmorphine, and this is metabolized rather quickly into 6-monoacetylmorphine, which is actually more potent than heroin or diacetylmorphine. And ultimately, through one more pass, this becomes morphine, which then circulates as morphine does, and morphine has a really, really, really high incidence of being immediately removed by the liver as morphine-6-glucuronide, and then mm -hmm. metabolism proceeds from there, and that's the elimination pathway of diacetylmorphine. So adding those groups gives sort of a buffer between the drug and elimination and also allows it to kind of shove itself into your brain a little bit faster. Mm. Um, that's the same idea with the other dual morphine esters. And as I read, this continued these sort of smart alecky drug additions that allowed things to go under the radar for about five years until the federal government passed another specific but more wide-ranging act that said, okay, now, you know, you gone and done it, I'm mad now. We are banning all esters of morphine, oxycodone, and hydromorphone. So, you know, all the guys, you know, they packed it up. Like, oh, darn, you know, I'm going home. Uh, can't have any fun here anymore. Mm -hmm. So that, that was kind of the initial history. But th this is all before the name designer drug even became a thing. Nobody called these designer drugs. Nobody thought this. So th this term only came about in the 1980s. Now, during the 1980s, I want to say it was 1986? It was during the Reagan presidency, if I remember right. I'm bad with years, but good with general information. Bears won the Super Bowl in 1986, baby. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's really the point of this podcast. I'm, I'm about to shift gears into talking about the Bears winning the Super Bowl. Yes, okay. I was hoping really. you would say uh, I, here I just on, had that feeling. Here on Let's Farmanize, your ultimate source for vintage sports information. <laughs> <laughs> the most misleading podcast that, that you've ever listened to. But of course. There we go. That's the fun in it. You don't want to know what to expect. So in the 80s, the reason this came about was because of the fact that this is when fentanyl and fentanyl analogs first started appearing in heroin. It started happening in California because, you know, of course, 
It happened in California. And the, these were various analogs of fentanyl and fentanyl. The first one that was found in a toxicology report of a dead heroin user and publicized was alpha-methylfentanyl, which is very, very, very exceedingly similar to fentanyl, obviously just with the addition of a methyl group in a certain spot, which I, I believe would probably make it more potent. It was found originally before the ban in 1976, but the actual banning did not occur until 1986 mm -hmm. under Ronald Reagan. This old ultimately led to the Federal Analog Act over many years, which is what we have now. The Federal Analog Act is a very broad sweeping piece of legislation that was designed to circumvent the problems that were had with the initial Opium Control Acts and that they were far too specific. The current Federal Analog Control Act essentially says that if something is substantially similar to or produces an effect similar to or greater than that of an existing controlled drug in Schedule 1 or Schedule 2, that this drug can be considered and controlled as if it were Schedule 1. If you want to be really technical about that, I, I think that law is very badly written. Does, it, does anybody have any idea why that, that's very, very badly written? Like Who's the, the determining body as to whether or not something is, is closely related enough to a, a Schedule 1 drug? Like I would imagine, or I would hope at least, that it's a team of chemists or pharmacists, probably most likely, I, molecular chemists. I don't know about the specific body, but the organizations, as I understand it, are a bit of a combo of FDA and DEA, which they don't really seem to make super chemically sound decisions, so I, I highly doubt it is anybody who is super trained in the area. But the, the best thing about this law is that if you read this correctly and you want to be really, really technical about it, I'm pretty sure that that makes caffeine illegal. It's yeah. a stimulant. It's a central nervous system stimulant and it's intended for human consumption. And so arguably that, that's illegal. If you really wanted to push that, if, if somebody was a really hard up US attorney, that would be a really interesting thing to see attempt to go through. So speaking on legality, ba based on like, from what I, everything I've seen, um, like on live PD and like other <laughs> police shows, isn't it like if, if you get pulled and you have like, I don't know, a, a like the same amount of spice versus like weed, you're going to get more in trouble for the spice than you are the weed, right? At this point in time, I, I would believe so because of the fact that there are laws in a lot of states, and I believe on the federal level as well, that say that things that are masquerading to an extent as controlled substances, especially if you were, if they could prove you were intending to sell it as marijuana, there are penalties for like pretending you have an illegal substance. But in this case, not only would it be initially illegal but you are pretending that it is something else that is also illegal. Um, K2 is an interesting one, because K2 is actually, it's, are any of you guys familiar with the chemist John W. Huffman? Escapes Can't me. say I am. He, he has a very stately name, I think. It, it sounds like he should be running like an English barony or something, at least to me. <laughs> I think it's the Huffman. I don't know, but he created these analogs of THC. They were, they're just called JWH analogs, and a lot of them have very, very uncatchy names. They're just JWH dash number, number, number. And he made several of these. And for quite some time, they just sort of like, he made them to make them because he was doing some research on the matter. And then they just kind of faded off the radar. But then they ended up coming back in Spice and K2, and they have many, many, many times the binding affinity of the natural cannabinoids and endocannabinoid substances, hence the, the massive freakouts that were reported when Spice was marketed. Mm. Um, and arguably, all of these things were marketed as being not for human consumption, very, very, very explicitly. Now, I don't think, any, I don't think anybody actually bought Spice and burned it as an incense because 
Spice was just like dry plant matter that they they quite literally just spritzed with a liquid solution of these JWH outlets. I I don't know what that smells like. Does that does that smell good? I mean, maybe if it smelled good, maybe it just smells like weed. Yeah, does it smell some, like a skunk? I guess some people like that smell. I can't stand it. I, I mean, I guess you know if you just really wanted to to give somebody the reason to search your house and arrest you, you would just have incense that smells like illegal things are going if on. If you like the fragrance of skunk in your home, yeah, yeah. I mean, just go catch a skunk, dude. You run mm. less risk, and then you could have a pet skunk. Yeah, they're cute pets. If they didn't smell, they'd be cute pets. I think you can get them descented, right? Maybe. Can yeah, you get the gland so. removed? I don't know. I mean, I. I feel like in North Carolina that would be tricky because I don't think you're allowed to have any rabies vector animals, are you? Isn't any animal a rabies vector animal? Te- yeah, technically, yes, and I mean humans are also rabies vectors, so... Like cats and, and dogs can transmit rabies. Um, I mean, I'm not going to keep a bat in my house. Yeah, bats are... Yeah, I mean, bats especially are now. Bats are cute, but I don't want to... They got diseases, man. But Yeah, they do. Yeah, possums, I think, are the main contention of the laws in North Carolina. Like you're, I don't think you're allowed to have a possum under any circumstance in North Carolina. Which is the correct decision. Possums are a scourge upon this planet. I disagree fully. I think possums are gorgeous and sweet, and we, they're very special little creatures. Do we have a hot take on possums on this podcast we, right now? We have a very hot take. <laughs> I don't know how hot my take is, but I've seen possums ruin so many crops. It's honestly kind of shocking that anyone wants to keep them as pets they they don't understand they know not what they do this is true the the cool thing about possums though on an unrelated but also biochemically interesting note which i guess i can pretend that that ties in somehow is that rabies actually doesn't live very well in possums Hmm. in my virology course i remember in undergrad my professor who was a sort of portly older gentleman who knew a lot about virology and was really, 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 really fond of fun facts. I took probably four or five classes with him. He said that possums have kind of a low body temperature. So rabies, or it was either too low or too high, and that the rabies virus really doesn't live on all that well in a possum. Hmm. That is not to say that a possum cannot get rabies, but they're less likely to get it probably on a basis of just if they're exposed to it, then you or I, I would think, because our body temperature is more conducive to the growth of rabies. That's a whole other podcast, though. I could talk about rabies for probably like at least a half hour. I'm, I'm trying to remember where I was exactly. We were talking about K2 and spice. Yeah, I also wanted to ask if the Analog Act also applies to other scheduled drugs like Alprazolam, Xanax. As if it's just Schedule 1 and 2s. The explicit Federal Analog Act says that if something is similar to structurally or in effect or greater than effect of anything that is Schedule 1 or 2, then it can be immediately emergency scheduled uh, as Schedule 1. Okay, so that doesn't include Alprazolam and like Ultram and stuff like that then? That's the tricky thing about it is that there are lots of state analog acts too, and I did not have the time to go through and memorize every single one of those. So there's probably some intricacies that could get those scheduled, but my impression from the overall framework of the Federal Analog Act is that if it's not similar to a Schedule 1 or 2, then it can't be straight away emergency scheduled. Okay, so designer drugs, the the thing I'm going to bring up since we were talking about alprazolam and benzodiazepines, is that you can still, on the internet, buy all kinds of analogs of benzodiazepines right now. And I mean, it's kind of gray area, and there's probably some rules about it that are being broken, but I do not believe any of them are explicitly illegal. So let's talk about 
mm, clonazepam or clonopin, as it would be more commonly known. Do you know what the major analog of that being sold on the internet, I believe, still to this day is? Do you know what it's called? We're not talking about kava kava, are we? We are not. Okay. We are talking about clonazolam, which <laughs> is hysterical. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're just daring you to, to think of it. Like it's, oh, yeah. And that, that's not even the worst one. Imagine, be with me here for just a second. You're on the internet, okay. and you are searching. You, you are feeling really tired, and you're trying to buy some legal speed, right? And you're, you're clicking and you're surfing down the page and you get to a website, it's got a name like UK Happy Kims or Cayman Kims or Super China Ultra Chemicals or something like that. You go to this website and the first thing you're greeted with is a stock image of a man in a laboratory usually or like a, a woman in a lab coat waving at you and smiling at the top of the page. And they have all these headings for different research chemicals that you can buy. Research chemicals is the parlance that these typically go under now because calling them research chemicals gives the people who make them an immediate liability buffer because they're telling you, hey, these are only to be used as chemical specimens. If you eat a bunch of this and have a problem, it is not our fault. That, that is what they're commonly called by the people who sell them. Designer drugs is not the parlance of the people who peddle in these, it's the parlance of typically the government and writers on the matter. But you're at this website, and the smiling woman has greeted you and waved at you, and you're, you're feeling pretty warm and fuzzy on the inside, and you feel like this might be the place to make a purchase. So you go to a heading, and you're looking for chemical similars to, say, methamphetamine. And you know, there's all the liability disclaimers, and it says, you know, you please don't eat this. We're not responsible if you eat this. It's bad, or it might be bad. This is for, for laboratory purposes. And you're scrolling down, and you get to the M's. You're in the M section. And that's where you think you're gonna find the money. That's where you think what you want is at. You scroll down a little bit more and you see it. The, the ultimate analog. And you know what it's called? Methamnetamine. <laughs> it's, they're, they're, not even, they're not even trying. And methamnetamine is, so I, I don't know if everybody has a mental picture of the structure of methamphetamine, but it's pretty simple. So I figure everybody's seen it once or it's twice. The benzene ring and then the, the chain. Yeah, isn't it meth, yeah. Uh, isn't, yeah, because well, isn't methamphetamine like it, it's, it's the, the word itself is actually like it breaks down exactly what pretty much is. it's just a benzene ring and I think there's oh it's like a I think it's a four or five carbon tail with an yeah. amine on the oh, end yeah. and then there's like a methyl group on the second carbon off the ring precisely right that, that's what that's I was 100 percent right I'm sure it is yeah. because amphetamine the only difference obviously since it lacks the the math is that it's it does not have the methyl, methyl group yeah. there which is why amphetamine is not as effective because it's not as lipophilic it can't shoot through quite as quickly methamphetamine is essentially just methamphetamine but instead of having a benzene ring it has a naphthalene that, that's that's really the only it's just a big two ring system attached to that same thing yeah <laughs> naphthalene you know, isn't that the same stuff in mothballs I mean, naphtha, yes, uh, but naphthalene is a lot more yeah, yeah. toxic on its own. Yeah. Well, and that, that's the, is talking about that kind of stuff, you get further into that, and there are also substances that are, that are fluoro derivatives of existing mm. drugs, like oh, four fluoroamphetamine. It's just amphetamine, but obviously, as the name states, it has a fluorine on the fourth card, and you, <laughs> there are no long-term studies on that, but I can only imagine what that eventually does to your nose or your stomach or wherever you're ingesting it. Hey, those epithelial cells look kind of nice. I think I'm going to take those cell walls right off. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, fluorine, fluorine likes to party, and 
fluorine is not going to stop for you. I mean, that, that is a problem when it comes to very similar drugs, is that one of the best ways to make these different is just to willy-nilly stick things on them without considering the consequences. So we've almost created a, a worse problem because we have these things that are, in some cases, equally as addicted, addictive to existing illegal drugs. They have equal abuse liability, but they're also just overtly toxic sometimes. And now, a word from our sponsor. just kind of the same thing but the the government can't move fast enough to to get rid of all these and then if you want to make a new substance illegal under the the analog act you you have to essentially go to court because it's really hard to have a law that makes things illegal before they exist (laughs) it's it's very difficult to make that tenable and there is a little bit of case law on the matter because as i said it's very hard without legal precedent to make something that has not even been on the government's radar illegal. One of the most prominent case law bits for the Analog Act involves a substance called alpha-ethyltryptamine. Can everybody guess what that's similar to? Yes, dimethyltryptamine. There was a a fella, I actually, because I was looking at this not too long ago, I actually took a screenshot of some of the case law. Alpha-ethyltryptamine was brought up in a case law case in Colorado in 1992 by a fella named Forbes. The case was the United States versus Forbes. He possessed a quantity of alpha-ethyltryptamine, or AET, which the government of the state, I do, or the federal government, intended that this was too similar to dimethyltryptamine and diethyltryptamine for it to be legal. So Forbes fired back with the fact that he thought that the law was too constitu- too vague to be constitutional, and he won. At that particular point in time, alpha-ethyltryptamine was not made illegal because the court that he was fighting his case in ruled that the law was too vague to let people know that stuff was illegal before they got it. Because, I mean, if the government passed a law that said chocolate bars may or may not be illegal, and I bought one, and then they arrest me tomorrow, I'm like, I don't know. It's kind of the same thing here. He he didn't know, and based on the law, he had no way of knowing. So the right. court said because he didn't prove through any of his actions that he had a reasonable belief that this was illegal, that he could slide on it. I'm glad you broke that down for my feeble understanding of the court system into chocolate bars, because that I can understand. (laughs) Everybody understands chocolate bars. So he won won the suit, though, right? He did. Now alpha-ethyltryptamine is illegal, but it was explicitly scheduled, I think, a few years after that. I want to say it was still in the 1990s, like... Let's see, that was in... It it clicked while you were talking DMT, dimethyltryptamine. I didn't get that right away, which is bad because we've written episodes about it. Yeah, really? Well, we've we've mentioned it a couple of times, just like once or twice. Yeah, not as much as another famous podcast likes to mention. You're talking about the... Are you talking? We can't. We can't oh, say we his can. name for copyright reasons. Joe Rogan's name. Um, You're talking about Joe Rogan, right? He's a yeah. public figure. I feel like we can say his oh, name. He's, he's, he's number one podcast on Spotify now. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. We're just. We can say his name. It's like it's it's a household name. It is. Not I not I don't know why he's associated with that at all, though. I'd like to. Well, I mean, he... maybe that has something to do with the guest he's been bringing on recently. We're coming for you, Joe Rogan. Yeah, we're, uh, Joe Rogan, we are not coming for you. I'm coming for you, Joe Rogan. All right, you can have that battle. Yeah, dude, Joe Rogan is pretty jacked. He can come down here and beat us up. He's, no, got, he's got the billions saying. of followers we don't have. Whatever. We don't have those. We're smarter. <laughs> uh, undoubtedly smarter. <laughs> yes. Joe Rogan, his ramblings are just, they're insane. I remember I tuned into an episode of JRE one time, and he starts telling this story about how he was like, or a guy on his show was telling a story about he was, like, camping, and a bear went into camp, and he, like, 
the bear was running through and he like jumped on the bear's back or something. I can't even remember exactly what he said. It was so insane and almost obviously a lie. I miss young Joe Rogan, like Fear Factor Joe Rogan. That was I the do best. I not. That was... That was, that that was, was, awesome. was, the, was oh, He was on Fear right? Factor? He was the host of Fear Factor. Oh, yeah. yeah. I have no idea. Like 2004 Fear Factor? I, I yeah. want to forget that era of my life ever existed. <laughs> the Fear Factor era? Back when he was like so a usual. so cringe from just, that time. Just the, <laughs> from like 03 up to like 06. It's just like nothing but like oh, yeah. the, the, the worst fashion of the 90s and the, oh, and the worst of the 2000s. Yeah. Mm. So when we're talking about spice, I'm assuming that we're not talking about the, the Frank Herbert's Dune spice that lets you travel in space who, who spice knows? oh wait are you so you're talking about the chemical I don't that, know what spice is oh okay I was spice was a product that was marketed as an herbal incense everybody knows what K2 is right uh, also no Oh, really? K2 was, it got pretty famous for a little while there, I think in the 2010s. I think you need to specialize in, in illegal, like, uh, like, uh, addiction, like, as your, as your choice in pharmacy, because you know way more about this than any of us do combined. I've always found the whole thing really fascinating, just the dynamics of it, because the, the human body is really just a machine run by chemicals at the end of the day, if you're not accounting for soul and drugs, whether they be. Does, anyway. are, we, are we getting this deep in? Yeah, I, I like to, I like to dive. I'm like the sperm whale of podcasts. I go, I go down there hunting for those squid. You better believe it. Can we just say that's the quote of the year for this podcast? That's too good. That's it. Wrap it up. My career's over. Ooh. Keep that in. Don't edit that out. In no, we're not. We're keeping that. That was amazing. And I'm going to tweet this at Joe Rogan. So. Yeah, good idea. We're coming for you. Maybe Joe. I can maybe Check I can rise to the top with you on the JRE. I'm down with that. So K2 and Spice were very similar products. They were both designer drugs designed to get around marijuana prohibition. I believe they were sold in areas other than the United States, but as far as I know, they became the most famous in the United States. They would be sold mm-hmm. at head shops, at gas stations, wow. um, just kind of any little mom and pop store. And essentially, what the people who manufactured it would do is they would take a bunch of leaves, you know, like it was probably like spices and basil and oregano. I don't think an official formula was ever released for obvious reasons that this was kind of sketchy. And because they marketed it as an incense, they didn't have to list all the ingredients because, you know, it didn't fall under the, the Pure Food and Drug Act. Which, by the way, the Pure Food and Drug Act in the 1800s was the first act to specify that you had to actually, you know, label drugs, just for the <laughs> record. At that point in time when that act was passed, Heroin, cannabis, morphine, and cocaine were still legal as long as you said they were in whatever you were selling. So you couldn't just have Pappy Grandpa Smith's patent medicine for sleep and good times and sell it out of a (laughs) carriage. You had to actually tell people what was in that. And one of the interesting things about that, because I meant to talk about that earlier and totally missed it, after this law was introduced, uh, based on the statistics that we have from that period of time, the use of opioid-containing medicines that at the time could still be bought over the counter, usually as some kind of morphinate or something of that nature, the use of them dropped by about 30%. So, I mean, it showed that even at the time, a part of the problem was just ignorance. There wasn't some wide-ranging societal degeneracy that was causing everybody to go buck wild. It was just people didn't know what what was in there. And I mean, this was the 1860s and 70s. There was you had to travel 40 miles out of town just to get to the nearest library, and then wait six months for the book ship in from Europe. You know, like you you didn't have that information, so they didn't have it labeled. But it was essentially just a clump of leaves. It was sold in a little package. It almost looked like 
a big York peppermint patty package. You know what I'm talking about? I always saw it packaged as um, roll your own tobacco. Yeah, it, it could be that too. Um, but I, I remember at one point I saw like a picture of some packaging. It was like a foil package. It was a little square. But there, there were a, like K2 Spice, all those. I think there were more than that, but those were the most famous. And they had these leaves. And what they would do is they would have a liquid solution of a JWH or John W. Huffman. I, I mentioned him earlier. Cannabinoid analog, which were extremely potent full cannabinoid 1 and full cannabinoid 2 receptor agonists. They were very, 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 very extremely potent. And they would spritz this substance on these leaves that they were selling. So when you smoked it up, you you would get high, you know, and that was kind of the point, even though they marketed it as not for human consumption and as an incense. Right. And this was very attractive to people who had drug tests for jobs or people who were on parole. But because of the extremely powerful effects of these agonists, like these were many, many, many fold, some of them, the potency of TH which is already known for, in some people, producing psychosis and paranoia. People were having a bad time most of the time. And this ended up being thought of, at least by a lot of people, as a sort of undesirable thing to purchase. I mean, there, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence for that. If you look on the internet, I'm sure if I remember right, there's all kinds of stories like, I I took Spice and, you know, got divorced and a, like a werewolf married my wife or something. <laughs> Some real, some real tabloidy type stuff like it, that. If it, if that product had a warning label, if it had one unison warning label, it would definitely say, "Have a bad time." That's going to be a side effect. You I mean, might that, have a bad time. That would have done it. And I, I remember, I actually at one point I watched an interview with one of the guys that he ran either the company or he was involved in the running of the company that produced either Spice or K two. And these people, because they knew what was going on, they just played complete ignorance. They were like, well, you know, I said that, you know, not to smoke it. If people are smoking it, that's not my fault. Like they, they pretty much completely refused to acknowledge at least publicly that this was an issue at all. And I guess I can't blame them because if you do that, it's like game over. The, the whole thing is in the trash. The John W. Huffman cannabinoids, it's also worth noting some structure activity relationships. One of the, the main predictors of cannabinoid binding affinity, based on all the, the journal articles that I've read, is cannabinoids will typically have a C3 alkyl chain. And it'll be, you know, anywhere from to some of the weaker ones like a, oh, why can't I remember what two, oh, that's an ethane all the way up to like potentially an octane for some of the synthetic ones. And the ideal range for maximum binding affinity is an alkyl chain of, I believe, somewhere between five and eight carbons. And that greatly affects the ability of the binding of the cannabinoid. It's also worth noting that the addition of an alkyne or alkene, a bond that will restrict motion on that alkyl chain farther out in the, the chain, say third or fourth carbon, helps increase the affinity because you restrict the rotation in such a way that helps it bind. But you don't want it too close. You don't want it You don't want it in certain spots on the chain because another thing that affects the affinity is the ability of the chain to slightly wrap around the main structure, which if you look at the endogenous cannabinoids like the anandamide and uh, I think arachidonyl glycerol or something, that name eludes me slightly. They're long lipid chains with like some carboxylic acids and a few alkenes and hydrophilic groups. And the way that they are most conformationally stable is kind of wrapped up. They don't really exist in straight chains, or so, so it would seem. Like I said, there's some contentions in the literature on these, this matter, and uh, I don't know, but I, I thought that was interesting. Might be a little bit out of the scope, but I thought it was worth reporting from a structure activity relationship perspective. I had another point in relation. Did I, did I answer everything about the spice and the K2 oh, effectively? Yeah, I Does definitely that... feel, I, it's ringing a bell now that you mentioned it. I do remember reading, seeing headlines about synthetic marijuana, Yeah, and it, that's... 
kind of what Are it was. Are you telling me you don't watch live PD? I don't have <laughs> Sergeant television. Shane Sticks Larkin? I'm, I'm Shane Larkin, but most people call me Sticks. No, I didn't know your last name. You're what? Larkin? What? My last name is Garretson. I thought that was weird no. because I knew you were Garrett, and I was like, who's Shane Larkin? Yeah, Shane his Larkin. name, his name Shane? is Shane. That's the other Shane I know. Are you Shane Larkin? No. Are you sure? I'm pretty Shane, sure. Shane, Shane Larkin? Larkin? He's the live PD guy. Who, you mean the, like the host of Live PD? He's also like a police officer on the show. And his name is Shane Larkin. Shane Larkin. Yeah, I was more about cops. It, kind of sticks. Guy. Mm-hmm. Sticks. Yeah, Larkin. The, I haven't watched cable television in probably over a decade, so Cops mm-hmm. is my only reference for that yeah. kind of show. Sh- Shane Larkin is like he, he's like in his own world in Oklahoma, where he's just like every criminal in Oklahoma, in his county or wherever he he, he works, has like a nickname. So he's got like <laughs> Little Robbie, and he's like going to take down Little Robbie. Oh, Little Robbie just got shot. It's kind of funny. He is personally going to take them down? He does. Yeah, he does. He was the one that went to... I mean, to be fair, there's about nine people in Oklahoma and only two of them are criminals, so... I don't know. There's there's nothing to do in Oklahoma. I'd probably commit a lot of crime if I lived there. Especially because of the musical. Yeah, you know, I... Oh, yeah, the (laughs) musical makes me mad. I... I was flipping through channels one day, and I happened to land on Oklahoma, the musical, because, you know, it's got an exclamation mark after it, so you got to yell. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I just remember when I started watching it, they were just starting a song, and they were just singing about how, like, some guy named John is dead and how nobody really liked him. And I remember them being like, John is dead, John is dead. Was, I didn't know what was going on. It was very upsetting to me. One of the things that I found most interesting um, ever since I have known and been somewhat interested in the, I guess, the, the prognosis of designer drugs and all the things that are involved with that and prohibition law and the drugs in general, the interesting thing is that a, a lot of people seem to think that these drugs are new or that these chemists are synthesizing them themselves, like they're just... A lot of these come from China, by the way. There's a lot of Chinese chemists doing this because what is the DEA going to do about that? Nothing. Um, yeah, precisely. They're, they think that they're making these things and they're just kind of coming up with them on the fly and shuffling them out into the market. But a lot of these were drugs with previously published syntheses, or syntheses rather. These are drugs that pharmaceutical companies made however many years ago and they just made them so they could get a patent and then they didn't use them because they thought that maybe in the future they would do something with them. So they would just make a bunch of analogs of something and then they would patent them all and let them rot on the shelf as far as the synthesis. But sometimes the syntheses would be published. Um, One of the most prominent or currently prominent examples of this is a designer drug with a much less catchy catchy name than some of the other ones that we've gone over, like, you know, methamnetamine that I was talking about earlier. U-477 double opt. And this is an opioid analog. It is a short-acting kind of fentanyl relative substance. And it was, it's been somewhat popular on the designer drug scene or as I've you know seen and looked up, and it's, from what I understood, still sold on some more sketchy internet marketplaces. As I remember, U470, or we're just gonna call it U47 for the purposes of this, mm-hmm. is now illegal. But for a period of time, it was showing up all over the place, people were buying it on the internet, it was in heroin, it was everywhere. And it's about 7.5 times the potency of morphine. But it was, my point is, it was synthesized by the pharmaceutical company Upjohn in the 1970s. And then they kind of just like, eh, whatever, we don't really, we don't really need this for anything, we're just gonna get it on the books. And these chemists are taking, you know, existing recipes for things that have really just fallen under the radar, and then kind of cooking them up and sending them out. I just have one question. Yeah. What's up, John? We got corny real quick. The pharmaceutical company Updog. (laughs) (laughs) 
but let me let me think. So does any does anybody have any particular questions about anything that I've talked about or anything that you think I could elaborate on that might be effectively useful? I mean, I, I don't. I, I think I, I, I you just was, want me to leave. Like, well, oh, get, get, yeah, get out leave. of here immediately. <laughs> no, I think I think it was good. I you know when when people talk about the opioid crisis these days, you don't really ever consider you, you always think about the big ones you think fentanyl you think heroin morphine all, all the opioids that people abuse but you don't think about the biosimilars and that's that's something i hadn't even considered so that's this is a good conversation yeah. for the for the 20 percent that we're actually on track for and there's all kinds of opioids that exist that people either alternate on different parts of the world are more or less familiar with there's all kinds of opioids that are commonly used for therapy across the pond in, say, Europe, but they're Schedule One over here. Like nicomorphine, nicocodine, keto, ketomabidione, I believe is one, which that one has a really bizarre name for a synthetic opioid. I think it's like a paparazine derivative, but don't quote me on that. Um, let's see, nicocodine. I couldn't quote you on that because I don't even know what you just said. Well, that's, that's I don't know what I just said. <laughs> is, that also, an, is that an antipsychotic? Uh, no. Ketomabidione no, is paparazine. I think, or it might have been, I might have meant to say paparadine, because paparadine just refers to like a nitrogen heterocycle, okay. I think, yeah. which I think is also what meparidine or demerol right. is derived from. Okay. I think a lot of synthetic opioids and are And that's actually from that. derived from haloperidol or vice versa. I. They're really similarly chemically related. I am not 100% sure on that one, but I, I like that. I like that. Thank you for the, the fun fact. I'm always looking to And they've got peroxides in them, that's why they've got para in the name. That there's sense. a peroxide at They're one point in, in the production, yeah. in the synthesis. Yeah, if you, you don't want to put peroxides in your <laughs> that's truck, true. that's really going to rip you apart. It's going to just explode in your nervous system. Yeah, that's why cool. when you... Or that would be an epoxide, pardon me. Yeah, if you ever see hydrogen peroxide, uh, you notice it's always in a brown bottle, right? Mm-hmm. And you also know that it's at a very low percentage, like 2%, right? Yeah. Do you know why? Because it's volatile. Yes. Has anybody ever spilled light. like lab grade peroxide on their hand? It burns. I have. <laughs> yeah. I was a lab assistant in undergrad. It's really unpleasant. <laughs> yes, very. And just any skin it touches just immediately turns bone white and dies. I never said anything in my, in my ergo chem lab, but like we were talking about this last time you were on too with the with the whole wafting thing. <laughs> well, I wafted something that was like very sulfurous or something, and I got it in my eyes. Nice. And I didn't say anything about it because it was like burning though for like like two hours, and I, I didn't say anything. That's when you just suck it up, go to the eye wash, be like, all right, this shirt's ruined. <laughs> I burned a couple holes in my favorite Dragon Ball Z T-shirt with nitric acid. Not bad. That was a sad day. We need to have an episode for with all of our lab misadventures. <laughs> that that would be fun. I remember, forget the time I like accidentally sprayed somebody with the reflux water in, in organic <laughs> chemistry because we had we had a, a condenser and you know you had to plug yeah. in the Every water and it just popped off. At least one once a semester that happens with somebody. Someone's gonna spill the condenser water. Or they're gonna mix up the the water hose and the suck hose and the suck hose. Because <laughs> you know when you have the, I don't know if it was I just, just like the maybe it was just my old. Um, my old chemistry lab because it was like there was only one faucet so you had the water running and that would create a vacuum on one and the water would come out the other one yeah if you mix those up because they were both clear obviously why would you ever make them a different color Mm -hmm. ours was like a weird like thick rubber like orange red rubber oh no yeah that'd have been nice we had had the clear ones at high point too that was not fun like i said designer drugs are very interesting and they are 
as long as humans are around, people will want to have bizarre, whether they be legal or illegal, chemical experiences. And as long as people have that desire, there will be weird chemicals floating around. And sometimes they'll be unsafe, sometimes they might lead to a pharmacological revolution, sometimes they might be useful, sometimes they might not be. But the fact of the matter is that designer drugs and this kind of situation is going to be germane to human existence for probably forever. So it's very interesting to ponder for me. Yeah, I think it's really interesting too. I like going down these, these paths with thinking and philosophizing about it. Yeah, because whether you think it's moral or not, it's gonna be a thing forever. Like whether you like it, don't like it, or ambivalent about it, it's gonna it's gonna be a thing. You can't do anything about it. If the federal government, with all their money, can't do anything about it, nobody can. Right. Like it's I don't know. Well, this has been really really interesting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank we really you. Appreciate having you over again. Indeed. Thank you guys. I appreciate the airtime. I enjoyed it. But bye everybody. <laughs> Have a great day. Why did I wave when no one can see me? <laughs>Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music. 